Hello, and welcome to this installment of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. Our next episode this season, celebrating recent work by Annie Pfeiffer, is drawn from a panel brought together on March 22, 2023, to discuss her recently published book, To the Collector Belong the Spoils, Modernism and the Art of Appropriation. To the Collector Belong the Spoils rethinks collecting as an artistic, revolutionary, and appropriative modernist practice that flourishes beyond institutions like museums or archives. Through a constellation of three author collectors, Henry James, Walter Benjamin, and Carl Einstein, Annie Pfeiffer examines the relationship between literary modernism and 20th century practices of collecting objects. Annie Pfeiffer is an assistant professor in the Department of Germanic Languages at Columbia University. Her research and teaching interests focus on 19th and 20th century German literature and culture, literary and political theory, the Frankfurt School, aesthetics, visual and material culture, and most recently, the intersection of modernism and fascism. She has also published articles in the New German Critique, German Life and Letters, and the peer-reviewed volumes Querying Consent and Iran and the West. Here is Annie Pfeiffer talking about her new book. Much of this book was written during the pandemic when all the archives and libraries were closed and any in-person gathering seemed unfathomable. So it's especially gratifying to be here today to celebrate with you all and to see my book as a physical object instead of a jumbled hoard of files and tabs on my screen. I was just interviewed for a podcast on the book, and the first question I was asked is what I collect. This question comes up all the time. People automatically seem to assume that collecting is a kind of autobiographical pursuit. And so my response is, I'd always thought of myself as a collector until I wrote this book, and I realized I was actually more of a hoarder which, you know, I think probably goes with the territory. I'm a paper hoarder, and that's primarily what hoarding is. According to the latest DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which classified hoarding now as its own category rather than a subset of what it used to be linked to, which is OCD, the most commonly hoarded items are related to paper, newspapers, magazines, and books, mail, and paperwork. So I still have all my undergraduate notebooks and tickets from every trip I've taken, but what I really am is an unabashed digital hoarder, a hoarder of files, photos, emails, and even tabs. And we can talk more about digital hoarding because that's essentially, I think, where my interests are currently at as I'm thinking about the project. So like a true hoarder, I can't fully abandon this project yet. And I'm currently thinking about how categories of hoarding and collecting function in the digital sphere, which is also the subject of my afterward. The distinctions between saving, hoarding, and collecting are increasingly nebulous in the infinitely expanding universe in the information age. So while my book is mostly confined to the material realm, I can continue to think about its implication for the digital world, where many of these questions around saving and archiving are still being worked out. In my own book, I wanted to think about the collector as a creative, even revolutionary figure, rather than simply an old-fashioned antiquarian. I sought to examine not only the author as a collector, but the collector as an author. On a basic level, writing has always been integral to collecting. The rationale and coherence of collections depend on catalogs that describe and archive their objects. But a collection can also be thought of as a narrative constructed through the objects it contains. 
and the collector of figure for the author who tries to create and control a world in miniature. So my book traces three author collectors, Henry James, Walter Benjamin, and Carl Einstein, and the way they engage with collecting as a literary and material practice. Each of the three sections of the book connects the author's material collection, which is the first chapter, with his literary technique of collection, which is the second chapter, arguing that they were mutually reinforcing processes. James was a paper hoarder, Benjamin collected toys, and Einstein was a renowned collector of African art. Significantly, none of the items are still extant. Many of the collections were abandoned or dissolved, partly due to the tragic circumstances around Einstein and Benjamin's life. Fleeing the Nazis, they had to get rid of many of their possessions. So what I really had to do in my work is also kind of recreate the collection based on photographic and archival materials. Since the objects themselves were no longer there. These authors embraced a modernist style of collecting that reimagines the relationship between author and text, source and medium, not as derivative or imitative, but as a form of creative appropriation. The synthesis between art production and collecting practices is a defining feature of modernist collections. And this is really epitomized in Benjamin's Arcades project, as well as Einstein's Document, which incorporated their finds into their text. The collection of these authors can no longer be distinguished from their work, raising the question, where does the collection end and the work of the art begin? Had the author become a collector or had the collector become an author? Through this lens, collecting becomes a dynamic future-oriented process of creation instead of merely a means to preserve the past. And this is, I think, an angle that often gets left out of discussions on museums and archives and other institutional collections. While the collecting impulse in modernism is certainly not limited to James, Einstein, and Benjamin, these three authors mediate between the literary and material worlds, self-consciously reflecting on their creative process as a form of collecting. They all use methods like compiling, interpolating, paraphrasing, and transforming existing texts. Part of what I try to do in my book is to parse out the various dimensions of collecting with all of their cultural associations to think about why collecting is sometimes an imprecise label for the activity that's happening. So each chapter also introduces a negative model of collecting, hoarding, rag picking, gleaning, and cultural appropriations. These models are interconnected even as collecting is socially validated and its cousins, shady cousins, are deemed pathological, unhygienic, or even destructive. I have a long section on gleaning, which was central to the work of Walter Benjamin, who thought of himself as a literary rag picker rummaging through the waist of the other authors who wrote before him. And here he very much models himself on the Parisian rag picker going through the city at night, collecting the garbage that the city pass off. This is part of what makes collecting a radical political and artistic act for Benjamin. So ultimately, my book thinks about collecting as a dialectical practice. To preserve an object, we have to kill or destroy it by taking it out of its context. Collecting is simultaneously revolutionary and reactionary, destructive insofar as the original object is transfigured or destroyed, and creative insofar as it assembles new objects. Walter Benjamin highlights this very dynamic when he warns that the collector is, quote, motivated by dangerous though domesticated passions, gefährlich wenn auch domestizierten Passionen. The dangerous passion highlights the roots of collecting in the instinct to dominate, appropriate, and despoil. On a most basic level, and here's just a few words about spoils since it's so central also to my title. On a most basic level, spoils are goods, property, or territory that are seized by force, often in a time of war. This book establishes a genealogy of collecting and spoliation 
the appropriation of the work or property of others. I borrow this word from James, who self-consciously employs the discourse of spoils throughout his work by blending its appropriative and creative dimensions. And part of what I'm arguing is that James was actually much more cognizant of those sort of dangers of collecting than more sort of traditionally radical or revolutionary thinkers like Benjamin and Carl Einstein. Throughout this book, spoils have a similar valence. They carry both the specter of destruction and the promise of renewal and transformation. Modernism was creative in its propensity to collect, appropriate, and transform, and spoliation helps to see it from a new angle. At the same time, acknowledging the creativity of certain forms of appropriation does not mean glossing over their political or ethical ramifications. Spoils ultimately gesture back to the origins of collecting, namely the triumphant display of the victor's loot. And this is, I think, very much still at stake in many of the museums that we visit today. James's wealthy American collectors plundered Europe in search of culture. Benjamin admitted actually himself that he was ransacking the French Bibliothèque Nationale to get his quotations in the arcades project. But Einstein is the most direct example of the way that modern collections continue to be furnished by spoils of colonization. In fact, his mania for African art developed during his appointment in the Belgian colonial office, underscoring again, I think the close ties between European empire and modern art. Recent discussions in European and American museums about the restitution of the Benin bronzes and other looted artifacts reveal the violent colonial forces which underpin collecting. And we had a series, I think, of interesting talks over the last month, which really sort of tease out the, the multiple angles of appropriation from Andreas Hussen's work to the presentation by Stefan Willer we had right before spring break, which talked about the Humboldt Forum as a kind of uh, modern museum with all these controversies at stake. So collecting has a fraught, bloody history, which is now only starting to be unpacked. Next, we'll hear comments from Christina Mendicino, Associate Professor of German Studies and Chair of German Studies at Brown University. She works on German literature and philosophy from the 18th through the 20th century, as well as ancient Greek poetry, drama, and philosophy. Her interests include the rhetoric of prophecy in German idealism and romanticism, translation, poetic and philosophical articulations of temporality, and choreography. Here is Christina Mendicino, followed by Annie Pfeiffer. I'd like to spend the remainder of this response addressing certain traits of James's Aspern papers that any study has prepared us to retrace. As the title suggests, the signifier that insists in the articulations of desire that structure James's novella is Aspern. This proper name of a poet who suffered an early death, but not too early to have had what the narrator calls both an early and modern phase of his reputation, is the one that confers value to the papers that the modern anonymous narrator seeks to acquire and that the poet's earlier lover, Juliana Bordereau, seeks to keep to herself. At issue in their interactions, which makes up the novel, is most obviously who can lay claim to the legacy of Jeffrey Aspern. But for this very reason, it is also an issue of the effect that the name has upon different subjects, as well as the consequences of their interventions on that name and on themselves. As Annie argues, Juliana Bordereau and the anonymous narrator can be characterized as a hoarder and collector, respectively. They fulfill these roles, however, 
insofar as their desires are attached to the same name, and for this reason, their gestures of hoarding and collecting are subject to the permutations and displacements to which each signifier is constitutively exposed. Juliana Bordereau, to be sure, remains resolved to keep all things pertaining to her relationship with Aspirin out of public circulation, as Annie has emphasized, whether it be an issue of the papers that she hides in her bed or even her eyes whose magnificence Aspirin once praised and whose appearance she now covers with a green shade so as to preserve them. But these very gestures also incessantly speak of Aspirin, giving her and him away with the same intensity with which she seeks to suppress or withhold every word of the poet. Even her characteristic comportment, described in the text as peremptory, coarse, rude, and abrupt, is nothing if not Asper, if I may refer to the obsolete Latin adjective signifying rough, harsh, or severe, which is also to say Juliana Bordereau incorporates Aspern and figures herself among the Aspern materials that she seeks to guard. It is, as Annie has shown, a matter of reification, but also I would suggest incorporation as well. Aspirin thus insists through the operations and aspirations of Juliana Bordereau, but there is another related complication that within the dynamic of hoarding and collecting that plays out at the level of the signifier in James's novella. Insofar as Juliana Bordereau is named in Aspirin's poems and will thus be called Aspirin's Juliana, beyond them as well, marking her proper name, like her proper eyes, as the property of the poet, his name is also contaminated with hers. This contamination is made explicit even before they are named, when Juliana and by extension her niece, Tina Bordereau, are introduced as persons whose name, I quote, has been mixed up for ages before with one of the greatest names of the century, end quote. With this intimate, albeit nominal association, no desire for the relics of aspirin could exclude a slippage in orientation towards such a terrible relic as the aunt Juliana Bordereau as well. This mix-up of the names arguably leads to a hesitation that holds the narrator in the house of the Bordereaux. On the one hand, he harbors the expressed desire to arrive at the papers, or as it says in James's revised New York edition, to arrive at the spoils. Yet on the other hand, the narrator is prepared to dwell where he has already arrived for at least three months before taking any other initiative besides sending the Bordereau women flowers from the garden that he cultivates on their property. For although Geoffrey Aspirin had never been in the house, some note of his voice seemed to abide there, the narrator claims, by a roundabout implication, a faint reverberation, end quote. Remaining in the house thus gives the narrator proximity by proxy to his nominal idol, whose literary remains, however, he cannot acquire, collect, or publish so long as he merely remains in the Bordereau house. There is not sufficient time for me to dwell upon more of the ways in which what I would call the Bordereau aspirin complex structures the objects and subjects of collection in James's novella. But in order to conclude, I would like to offer a brief commentary upon its constitutive significance for the one object that the narrator does acquire as a result of his stay at the Bordereaux, namely the portrait of Geoffrey Aspirin that Juliana Bordereau shows the narrator in one decisive scene and that her niece Tina gives the narrator after the death of her aunt, who expires shortly after catching the narrator attempting to pry into her secretary, or as it is also called in one passage, her bureau. In the last lines of the novella, the narrator confesses that the portrait hangs above his writing table, just as he had previ previously claimed Aspirin to hang high in the heavens of our literature for all the world to see. He thus appears to be left with a relic of Aspirin. But insofar as the portrait is the work of Juliana Bordereau's father, a painter, the spoils that the narrator comes to possess are not or not only in Aspirin, but also, as conventional diction would have it, a Bordereau. The object is marked by both of the names that had been mixed up from the outset of the text, and insofar as the narrator does not publicize his possession for all the world to see, but instead keeps it over his private writing table, his comportment towards the object resembles that of Juliana Bordereau more closely than it resembles the prying publisher who he had been before. 
The subject of this minimal private collection, in other words, is arguably not entirely the same subject as the one who had pursued Esperance papers at the outset, nor are the spoils from the narrator's quest at the Bordereau household an unadulterated relic of Esperance. The desires and the name of Juliana Bordereau persist in this other scene, however far Esperance's portrait may seem to have come from her Venetian home and however removed she may seem to have become as a result of her death. Both the narrator of the Aspirin papers and the portrait that he collects are, I would like to suggest, collective formations shaped by the operations with signifiers that are as such proper to none, but that instead subject all involved to displacement, condensation, contamination, and alteration. From what I gathered in rereading James with and through Annie's book, Collecting solicits reading, not only to glean what collecting makes out of its objects, to remember the losses that spoil each supposed victory, or to revise our understanding of modernist art, but also to address what it makes of its subjects, as well as the language in which we share. I think your reading of the Aspirin papers is really interesting. I actually thought as I was listening to you that there's something very similar going on in the other text that I analyzed at the end of the first chapter, which is The Last of the Valeri, where the end of the story or the novella closes with this image of a piece of the statue that they had unearthed that he keeps privately in his room. And it's this really interesting moment where there's a kind of private incorporation of some kind of physical artwork that has been collected. And I think that precisely goes to the heart of the sort of difference between hoarding and collecting, which I try to tease out, which is, I think, brilliantly formulated uh, in, in Orhan Pamuk's Museum of Innocence, where he says something like, collectors are proud and want to show their objects to the world versus hoarders who are private and want to keep things for themselves. And he almost sort of seems to differentiate them affectively as a kind of difference in their approach to wanting to either show or keep hidden these objects. And so when I listened to you talk about aspirin papers, I was very much remembering that kind of distinction as something where that kind of incorporation might be precisely where hoarding and collecting are different, right? Whereas the collector wants to show his or her their objects to the world to sort of exhibit publicly. And Pamuk also sort of says, collectors are Western, hoarders are Eastern. It's almost a kind of geographic orientation, which I think complicates it a little bit more. But anyway, I was thinking very much of this sort of public-private distinction that you draw. And I think it's really interesting to think about uh, the aspirin papers in that vein. Next, we'll hear from Andreas Huysen. Villard Professor Emeritus of German and Comparative Literature at Columbia University, where he served as founding director of the Center for Comparative Literature and Society. He is also a founding editor of New German Critique. Here is Andreas Huysen, followed once again by Annie Pfeiffer. I first met Annie on email in 2014 when she submitted an essay on Benjamin to New German Critique. It was entitled Between Antiquarianism and the Avant-Garde, Benjamin's Conflicted Collector. The article appeared too many years later under the changed but equally telling title, A Collector in a Collectivist State, Walter Benjamin's Russian Toy Collection. It thus gave me great pleasure to re-encounter this essay as a chapter of her deeply thought book, To the Collector Belong the Spoils. When I first read Annie's Benjamin essay years ago, 
I was struck by the persuasive way in which she makes sense of the riddle the Moscow diary has posed to many of its readers. Benjamin, whose close to two-month trip to Moscow in the winter of 1926 and 27, meant to establish relations with Russian intellectuals, deepen his commitment to communism, and rekindle his sexual affair with Latvian Bolshevik Azialatsis, whom he had first met earlier in Italy. But all these projects resulted in a failure on all three fronts. Hampered by his ignorance of the Russian language and frustrated by Asia's reluctance to re-engage, he instead focused on collecting Russian toys from the pre-industrial area as he was wandering around rather forlorn in the street markets of the Soviet capital. This only comes into full view as Annie reads the Moscow diary together with a diverse, diverse collection of short and mostly ignored scattered texts by Benjamin about Russian toys, child's play, and children's literature. The incipient communist was engaged, in other words, in the primordial bourgeois activity of collecting, while Russia was in the throes of collectivization. His well-known focus on childhood and on the power of children's play, one of his effective and intellectual links with Asia Lazis, energized this obsession, which, as Annie argues, seems more of an escape from Soviet realities and from the shipwrecked relationship with Asia than anything else. But to me, it remains somewhat of an open question whether Benjamin's turn to historical materialism is indeed already prefigured, as you argue, Annie, in this early collecting work. The pursuit of the Russian toy collection still seems to be too invested in a romantic, partly Tolstoyan celebration of the linkage child-peasant-proletarian. It seems more concerned with salvation of cultural residues than with revolutionary change, which indeed, as you argue correctly, becomes central in his later work on Eduard Fuchs, the Marxist collector of caricatures and erotica. After all, you yourself point to the antiquarianism of Benjamin's collecting desire, which to me seems closer to the historicism Benjamin later shunned than to historical materialism. And it's hard to fathom what collecting pre-industrial toys might have to do with Lenin's definition of communism as Soviet power plus the electrification of the whole country. And I would perhaps ask whether one couldn't even find a dimension of a romantic anti-communism in the Moscow diary when Benjamin laments in Siegeszug der Technik, the obsession of technology with technology in Soviet Russia. But be that as it may, Annie's writing illustrates marvelously how desire, even the mania of collecting, distinguishes the individual collector from institutional and museal collecting ventures. But overall, the book demonstrates that more than just producing an archive or a taxonomy, modernist collecting practice became a radical creative endeavor. The artist as collector, the collector as as artist. And this is true as she shows for Benjamin's Passagenwerk, the Arcades project, as it is for Einstein and Bataille's writing project of Document from the late 1920s. It's a riveting and brilliant exploration of modernist collecting. To the collector belongs the spoils is a marvelous and challenging book, unusually broad in scope and conceptually rich for a first book. Now, my questions. I wonder if you might have a comment on our current museum world. You speak persuasively in the book of the artist as collector, the collector as artist. Many current art projects come to mind as centered on collecting, on archiving, 
remembering and compiling projects which after reading your book seem quite traditional suddenly and in, in the tradition of modernism itself? Or have we perhaps reached yet another stage of this conundrum when today the museum curator is increasingly seen as artist and when contemporary artists are tasked with re-curating, though often temporarily only, extent museum collections. But this, of course, opens a whole other dimension uh, in the history of collecting. I first wanted to get to the question of historical materialism in the response to the Moscow diary. I think you're absolutely right. The purpose of his visit to Moscow is in some way, obviously, to establish contact with the communists, the Soviet intellectuals, to form alliances. But what he ends up doing is collecting these objects almost as a sort of reaction to this kind of overstimulating environment that he can't really get a handle on. And I guess my point in sort of linking this to the historical materialist is to suggest that already in this kind of early ethnographic moment, as he's collecting these objects and sort of taking them out of context. And it's quite funny because he's literally running around Moscow going to these different toy stores. And he at one point even pretends like he's buying something for his child. It becomes clear it's actually for himself. And there are all these moments where he does this. He's constantly sort of taking toys, which are these kind of functional objects and re-exhibiting them. And, you know, these are toys that then become these sort of museal artifacts, right, through his process of decontextualization. And I think that's exactly what then becomes the issue in our case project is, is taking things out of their context, their original context, and repurposing them. In this case, you know, children's toys that have a specific pedagogical function, they become these kind of artifacts. And it's interesting, too, that he commissioned them right away to be photographed. To pick up the other thread that you mentioned, which is the museum, we should think about what a museum, the modern museum looks like, right? Especially vacated from all the spoils. I mean, it's, it's hard to open, you know, the news now without seeing some case of a kind of repatriation of various works of art. Germany recently, I think last year, agreed to return a thousand, over a thousand Benin bronzes back to Nigeria. What might the modern museum look like? And how would we think about a kind of modern museum? And here I think, again, I, I like to quote Orhan Pamuk, it is imperative that museums become smaller, more individualistic, and cheaper. This is the only way they will ever tell stories on a human scale. Big museums with their wide doors call upon us to forget our humanity and embrace the state and its human masses. So here I think he sort of points to a different understanding of museums as a storyteller, right? As a kind of a, a space of storytelling rather than a kind of taxonomic, you know, these grand museums of the 18th and 19th century that aim to sort of display the world. Lastly, we'll hear from Bruce Robbins, Old Dominion Foundation professor in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. His works are mainly in the areas of 19th and 20th century fiction, literary and cultural theory, and post-colonial studies. Here is Bruce Robbins. The first thing that fascinated me in this very fascinating book was the title, To the Collector Belong the Spoils. This title plays on the saying, To the Victor Belong the Spoils. So for the purposes of this book, the collector is like a victor, a victor in a competition, or more likely a war. A Google search of the word spoils gives you references to political patronage or the spoils system, among other things. But since the original meaning of spoils, as the book reminds us, is goods, property, or territory, that are seized by force, often in a time of war, war seems the dominant paradigm. Add to this art and appropriation, 
in the subtitle, that is art as appropriation or as the taking of someone else's property, the violation of someone else's property rights. And it seems clear that what the book is asking is whether modernism or maybe art in general is fundamentally immoral or amoral, which makes me ask in turn how far the book wants to go or should want to go into the darkness of that vision. It's a high culture version, a sort of non-reductive version of the pop culture reductive question, what about artists who are monsters? as in the Todd Field movie Tar, or Claire Diderot's book Monsters, or one might say in Cancel Culture. If you want to talk about this, this will bring down the level of the conversation considerably from where we are. One piece of evidence that this is not where the book wants to go, or the only place it wants to go, comes from its use of the collector, and Christina referred to this, in an argument against artistic originality. The argument that all art, like collecting, is really a rearrangement of already existing materials. This argument, that art is a rearrangement of already existing materials, fits one asymmetry in the book. The fact that the collector equals Victor equation doesn't work equally well in all three of the cases that the book deals with. I think it's much less relevant to the Baudelaire rag picker model in Benjamin. In the middle section of the book, devoted to Benjamin, what's collected and aesthetically repurposed is refuse that has been discarded. Refuse that has been discarded does not have to be seized by force from any prior possessor. It's not a violation of somebody else's private property rights. I note in passing that Annie decided not to proceed as she could have, as Martin Puchner does in his recent book, Culture, the Story of Us, by questioning whether anyone should be understood as having property rights to culture at all. That question would also lower the level of conversation if you are interested in going there. I note also that if one wanted to make a case that the artist as rag picker is also the victor in a war, you would probably have to identify the antagonist over whom the collector artist is victorious. The antagonist would have to be time, since it's time that perpetually threatens all human objects and projects with dissolution and non-existence. It's time that the collector is at least potentially victorious over in this case. But if this argument is worth making at all, it would be necessary to add in this context, and here I'm indulging a certain tendency to be polemical, that the collector would be assuming that time is, after all, linear, as is the vision of history in Benjamin's Angel of History reading of the clay painting, history as an ever-increasing pile of ruins. Everybody knows it. Everybody quotes it. It seems interesting to me that the linearity of that paradigm is almost always taken for granted, even by those who assume, and everyone does assume, that Benjamin is refuting a linear historicist model of time and correctly so. The theory of history as cumulative ruination in the reading of the clay painting is just as linear as the progressive model that Benjamin calls historicist and is supposedly rejecting. So here I bring in evidence what I see, maybe wrongly, as the subtle, almost hidden arc that structures Annie's book. I think there is an arc. As I read it, simplifying enormously materials that are always presented with much more precision, the book starts with Henry James and James's moral critique of barbarous appropriation. And it ends with Carl Einstein. It could have ended with Einstein's complicity with European colonialism, with Einstein's case for the aesthetic value of African art, a case that depended on its aesthetic decontextualization, as Andreas was saying. It could have ended with Einstein's self-critique, that is, his shift away from aesthetic decontextualization and his project of restoring African artifacts 
to their functional symbolic significance in their cultures of origin. But that's not where it ends. Where it does choose to end is with Einstein's critical dictionary. The critical dictionary deals with words rather than with material artifacts. Unlike material artifacts, words cannot be owned and therefore cannot be stolen. If there is an allegory of criticism or of art rising up beneath this book's scrupulous scholarly surface, that's the one that has my vote. And that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Annie Pfeiffer and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you as well for listening. Once again, today's episode was celebrating recent work by Annie Pfeiffer. The title of her new book is To the Collector Belong the Spoils, Modernism and the Art of Appropriation. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next time.